Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. I'm excited about our guest today. It's Dr. Jason Bradford. He is the board president of the Post Carbon Institute. And those of you who listen to Go Green Radio regularly will know that we've had a lot of guests from the Post Carbon Institute on the show. And I'm really excited to have Dr. Bradford on. He has recently released a report uh, earlier this spring called The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification. And one of the things that we talk about on Go Green Radio is, you know, we talk about um, the nexus between uh, energy and, and our reliance on fossil fuels and how that can impact so many of the systems that we rely upon, not the least of which is our food system. So we're going to be talking about our food system in in kind of a new way, thanks to Dr. Bradford's paper um, that he just put out. And so welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Bradford. I am so glad to have you on the show. Well, I am really glad to be here. Thanks for uh, taking the time to have me on your show. You bet. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of guests from the Post Carbon Institute on the show, and uh, this is the first time we've had the board president of the organization on. So it's pretty exciting to have you on. And before we begin talking about your report, I'd really like to give you a chance to tell our listeners about the work of the Post Carbon Institute and specifically um, the work that you do for the organization. Sure. Yeah, the Post Carbon Institute. You, you can. Uh, think of as a as a think tank. Really, we we put ideas out there. Um, we we challenge assumptions and uh, really try to uh, really get people to connect the dots between energy and and society and the environment. And so uh, there's a report coming out also uh, by David Hughes, who's a fellow about uh, about the fracking industry and uh, the prospects for that. Um, and then also we've, we've released a podcast. It's called Crazy Town Podcast. Mm. I'm one of the hosts. There's two others on, on it, Cher uh, Miller and Rob Dietz. Uh, they both work for the Post Carbon Institute. And then we're going to have a webinar in late June about, about the topic of my report, The Future is Rural. And, of course, anyone can go to uh, www.postcarbon.org to, uh, to get any of that uh, information. Awesome. Well, as we begin talking about the findings in your report, I think it's really important that we help our listeners understand that your experience with the food system is not purely academic. I'd love for you to talk to us about your background in the practice of sustainable farming. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, my academic background is really in biology. And so um, agriculture for me has just been a practice, but it's been, you know, biology as as a research and academic pursuit really translates really well into agriculture because you're dealing essentially with uh, creating managed ecosystems for human use. But the same principles, if you're thinking about uh, sustainability, the same principles that apply in ecology apply in, in, in farming systems that, that really work well over the long term. So I've been a small-scale farmer on a one-acre and had a, a CSA where I you know, basically gave people uh, produce uh, uh, weekly. Uh, I mostly use hand tools for that. Uh, it was a pretty small-scale endeavor. I was really trying to understand how to, how to grow food um, with more simple methods and uh, simple in terms of the technology. Of course, you had to do a lot to think about your fertility and your workflows. 
And, uh, and then I have uh, experience also managing large, large farms, thousands of acres with uh, crop and livestock and organic certification. And in my own home, I have a, a yard and a, and a garden, and I like to really make that beautiful and produce a lot of food for my family in the summer. That's awesome. And I think that's really important because sometimes um, there are academics who put out reports that are, you know, very well researched, but they don't necessarily have the same cred as somebody who's had their hands in the soil. So um, I thought that was an important point to make. Um, You're also one of the founders of Farmland LP, a farmland management fund. that's implementing organic and mixed crop and livestock systems. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about Farmland LP and how it helped influence this most current report that you put out. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, that was, and I mentioned I was working small scale with hand tools, and then I also managed thousands of acres, um, and that was through Farmland LP. Um, I've, I haven't worked there for about a year, but I did, yeah, help, I've co-founded that. And we had farms in, in Oregon and California, and I saw sort of what you might call, you know, um, industrial agriculture. Uh, we, were, uh, we had giant tractors, and I was trying to, in a sense, in that, in that position, um, really focus on soil health and, and rotating crops and livestock. But at the same time, I saw how, how tied we were to reducing labor costs, um, getting bigger tractors, filling them with fuel, um, pumping water, you know, to irrigate crops. And, and so I, I got a good sense of, of the scale of agriculture today and how, and how it works and, and what kind of pressures there are from any farmer um, to produce food as cheaply as possible at, and using as much technology and, and, and energy to do so. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, that segues perfectly into the next question that I'd like to ask you. You know, in part one of your report, you outline the current predicament of our food system. And I'd like for you to explain to our listeners the vulnerabilities that arise from the end of cheap energy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what got me really interested in, um, in farming in the food system was I, I sort of saw the end of cheap energy over the coming decades. And I, I really got worried about it because if you look now at, our, at, at, at what farming's like in the United States and other highly industrialized countries, very few people are involved in, you know, directly on the land. And so, you know, right now uh, I'm, I've been out um, on a field and there's me and another guy and we've got a couple tractors and we're covering over 100 acres. So. Wow two of us, you know, with these equipment is out there each day um, tilling the soil, getting it ready for planting. And that's typically what you see is that nowadays you only need one person or so to manage 100 acres, and, um, and that's really unusual. And it's all because we have these big machines with hundreds of horsepower and the fuel to put in them. Um, fossil fuels were deposited, you know, tens of millions of go, years ago as... as uh, Algae died and got buried by sediment and decomposed. And so we're not making, you know, the earth isn't making more of them. And, mm-hmm. and so at some point you, re, you look at the fossil fuels are so uh, critical for our way of life and we really don't have substitutes for them. Um, so what are we going to do? I, I, I feel like in many ways we have to really 
think about and plan ahead because we're kind of locked into a system of using energy. And at this point, 10 calories of energy in, in mostly fossil fuels go into producing one calorie of food that gets on our plate. And that's completely upside down from how it should be and how it has been historically. So I'm really worried about, you know, natural gas and its, and its um, use in producing synthetic fertilizers. I'm worried about oil products and, its, and their ability not just to run machinery, but to transport all the inputs that go into modern farming, where you're essentially you know, extracting from the land through harvest and then having to replace what you took off the land through industrial-produced synthetic fertilizers that are really part of a mining um, and processing uh, operation. That's not the way nature works. And um, I feel that in order to really get a food system that will persist over multiple generations going forward, we have to figure out how to be more like ecologists and and, and mimic nature in our in our work on the land. Well, you know, a lot of people that are excited about renewable energy, you know, will give you all kinds of data that shows that, you know, we could power all of our needs times a thousand with solar or, you know, a combination of solar and wind. And, you know, they, they show the numbers, uh, you know, look what we could produce if we just had this many you know, devices, whether it's solar panels, wind turbines, what have you. Why right. don't you think that renewable energy will compensate for the eventual eventual decline in fossil fuels, even though we know they're getting cheaper and more and more are being installed each year? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, it's fair enough. I mean, I think that in, unless you're really steeped in this topic um, and you are just paying attention to kind of the media out there and um, what, what sort of being promoted, um, your energy literacy is not going to enable you to critique that very well. So I totally appreciate that. And so what my report goes through is what's unique about renewables is that the technologies being promoted for renewables are mostly related to electricity, right? You think windmills, mm-hmm. you think solar panels. And um, electricity uh, is an important thing to have, and, but, but it's only about, you know, 25% of the work we do can more readily be swapped out from, say, fossil fuel-generated electricity to renewable um, electricity. Most of the energy we consume has, is not in the form of electricity. And so if you think about transportation fuels, if you think about natural gas, these, this form of energy is much harder to simply swap out with, with electricity. These are heat-intensive processes, for example, or the density of liquid fuels when you put them into a tank. Um, I, I've got a tank on the tractor I'm running, and it gets filled up every couple days, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to be out there just going, going, going for hours and hours at a time. Now, people imagine that because there are Teslas driving around on the road with batteries, that mm-hmm. we can just do electric tractors. The big difference is that when you put batteries in a car, you are running that car on smooth roads. You are Mm -hmm. accelerating every once in a while, but mostly you're just trying to trickling as you're keeping the vehicle going at a cruising speed. The demand on those batteries is, is intermittently heavy, but mostly pretty light. When I've got a tractor going, 
I'm running that thing at like 80% of its horsepower capacity most of the time. Oh, wow. I'm dragging a steel through the field, let's say. And so what ends up, you know, if, if you were to put batteries in that situation, they just drain. And, and, and it becomes impractical then to get this big, heavy equipment um, across the land, you know, hours at a time using, using battery power. So I think there's just a lot of problems that we're just not going to be able to swap out renewable electricity for the fossil fuels in many ways we use them. And then you go towards, say, okay, well, we can do biofuels. Sure you can. But what that means is you're trading off the harvest for food or the harvest for fiber products, and you're saying, no, now I have to harvest for energy products as well. That's now a... Uh, something we don't have to we don't have to make that trade off. We get our fuel from below the ground in these reservoirs, and if as soon as you have to bring it above ground and start harvesting crops, you you run into all kinds of logistical problems and then trade offs. And what are you what are you allocating towards? Mm-hmm. Are you allocating for food? Or are you allocating towards putting liquid into your tractor? Wow, that, that's a that- tough thing to do. It is, and I, my mind is kind of blown right now because you know that's the first time I've heard somebody explain it so simply but so profoundly and that gives us a lot of food for thought Uh, we're going to take a break and when we come back we have so much more with dr bradford so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Hey. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in and so happy to have our guest, Dr. Jason Bradford, on the show. He's a farmer, biologist, and the board president of the Post Carbon Institute. And if you want to check out their website while you're listening to us on Voice America, open up a new tab in your web browser and go to www.postcarbon.org. Dr. Bradford just released a report earlier this spring called The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification. And Dr. Bradford, I want you to help us understand what you mean by the term, the Great Simplification. Yeah, my friend Nate Hagens actually coined that term as far as I'm aware. And uh, we talk about it in sort of an anthropological, you know, perspective. So it sounds, um, you know... uh, it may sound complex, but really it's not that hard to understand. If you were to look at the relationship between energy and <clears throat> excuse me, what is called social, uh, social complexity, you'll see that societies that have a lot of energy use tend to get a lot of differentiation between uh, workers. So you, know, you think about nowadays, oh, now I've got to go get a, a, a college degree and now maybe a graduate degree and I'm going to have a job that is very specialized, specialized knowledge, specialized skills. And so uh, civilizations kind of evolve to get more and more complex and create layers of, of bureaucracy and hierarchy and trade. And that is all propped up by higher energy use. And so what we are looking at is, uh, we believe because of the depletion of fossil fuels over the coming decades, that societies will have less and less energy available, and they'll start to they'll start to simplify in a sense that people will probably have more of a of a diverse skill set required to make their way in the world, um, and and require uh, more local control and governance of of things. So harder to support big bureaucracies and hierarchical systems. Um, so this is what societies you know look like when they don't have as much energy flow through them. So you can see examples around the world like that right now. Um, and you can see examples historically where societies go through sort of the, the rise and fall of, of energy sources and, and simplify during, during the decline. Mm-hmm. And your report highlights what you call the re-ruralization. Um, and you give some examples in the U.S., Cuba, and Greece. And I'd love for you to talk to us about why re-ruralization is an important element of a sustainable food system and talk to us about those three locations. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, no, it's an interesting. People, uh, you look at the trends that uh, there's more and more urbanization happening. And, and it looks like, wow, this is just some sort of inevitable rule. Uh, and really what it is, it's just the, the energy system is getting larger and larger and it's allowing these urban centers to build and it's allowing for the replacement of labor in the countryside with, with equipment and fuel. And, and that then people lose their jobs in the rural areas and they go look for opportunities in the growing cities. Now that sometimes falls apart. It doesn't work. And you see this where 
Uh, for example, in the U.S., the, uh, the Rust Belt areas, well, they lost some major industries. And so then people didn't have jobs in those industries, and the cities started to kind of fall apart. So Detroit, you know, is a third of mm-hmm. the population it used to be. Um, Cuba uh, went through what's called the, the special period, and this is when the Soviet Union uh, uh, fell, and they lost the ability to import uh, Soviet oil. So they had to then focus, instead of large industrial farms exporting sugarcane, to feeding themselves and training a whole cadre of people to go back out to the countryside and manage uh, farms with, with livestock and you know, tra- uh, draft animals and really rationing what fuel they could get and focusing on feeding the Cuban population rather than exporting things to the rest of the world and importing food. Uh, you see this in Greece, where uh, the Gre- Greece had a debt crisis and they they couldn't they, they couldn't uh, pay on it, so austerity measures were put in, massive job losses in the cities, and what people did is when they had connections to the land, say you're you're in your early 20s and you lose your job in the city, you go back to your family in rural Greece and you know um, take care of the goats and help with the olive harvest and put in a garden. Mm-hmm. So. This is what I sort of foresee happening over the long term in many parts of the world, and we're just seeing pockets of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you get to what, why is this important for a sustainable food system. It has to do with the fact that if you are harvesting biomass from the environment and producing waste, the, the way to, to lower the energy uh, impact of that is to not heavily process it, not package it, not ship it. It's to consume it more locally and also to take the waste products and, um, of humans and their animals and be able to put it back on the land. And that's really hard to do if you're disassociating in space where people are actually eating food and where people are actually producing food. So you end up sort of taking people and redistributing them back across the landscape more evenly. I'm not saying there's no more towns or cities. I'm just saying that you know, these rural hinterlands, or what we call flyover country, that's been yeah. depopulated, um, will probably have to become more populated again. And cities will have to uh, depopulate to some extent. Well, that's interesting. And I think, you know, that's going to come as news to a lot of young people who are kind of excited to move to the city, you know. Yeah. Kind of the YOLO of your 20s and, and being in the city. So that that's a really interesting, you know, situation that we we can look towards. You know, in part two of your report, you discuss some of the appropriate ways of thinking in order to respond to the vulnerabilities of our food system. And I was particularly interested in the section that's entitled Resilient Science and the Adaptive Cycle. I'd love for you to help our listeners understand that section of the report. Yeah, sure. So this is a really interesting um, kind of way of thinking about human uh, societies and civilization that is modeled on what happens in natural ecosystems. And, and you can sort of think of um, this from what, what in ecology would call like the, the succession of communities. And what tends to happen is that when you say, say you've got a, um, a field that, uh, a piece of land that's been scoured by floods or, or a volcano has blasted and it sort of you know, this bare space. Well, what ends up happening is things come in and colonize it, and there are 
all these abundant resources available. There's no competition. And the community of animals and plants gets more and more complex as more, people, more, more entities enter that system. Mm-hmm. And then it gets this, you know, over hundreds of years, you might get this mature forest. And that forest then though, starts to get rigid and, and old, and it becomes then susceptible to things like wind throws and fires. And it might then, um, at some point, with you know, sort of sunlight catastrophically, break down, and then the cycle begins again of, of, of going into the system, which is empty somewhat, but has a lot of available nutrients, and repopulating. Mm-hmm. And you see this happening also in social systems. So um, what I think we are at now in our civilization is we're at sort of this, this end stage of our development of a, a complex system that is, is large and mature, but now it's becoming more and more brittle. And uh, it can now topple. And that will lead to then what's called a release phase where you have to then reorganize quickly and, and, and adapt then to the new situation, which I think will be related to an energy decline and the social disruptions that come of that as mm-hmm. we, again, go back to more a simplified way of organizing society. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the kind of thing you can't really predict when a forest fire is going to happen or you know, when a landslide is going to happen. You can't, mm-hmm. It's hard to predict the timing of this or exactly what stress event will lead to it. But what you can do maybe is, is think about how to transform the system and, and uh, when, that, when, that, when those crises start occurring. Makes perfect sense. And, and that's a daunting task, but it's good that we start talking about this because yeah. as human beings, we have brains that trees don't have, you know, and so we can start to look at, you know, how do we get ready for this? If this is inevitable, if we know that fossil fuels won't last forever and the earth isn't making more, how can we transition so that we continue to thrive as a species and, and have a great standard of living? I mean, this isn't right. completely unknowable. So in part three of the report, you outlined some of the key knowledge that we need to have um, for the future of food, and I'd like for you to take some time to talk about some of those topics. Yeah, so what I was doing in this section um, was saying, my gosh, you know, I've been thinking about this for quite a while now, and I've run up against a lot of misunderstandings and, and lack, of, lack of just basic knowledge about food and agricultural systems. Because, of course, our population is not many people do this. Uh, there's not a lot of training in it. And so what I was trying to do was say, you know, if, if our civilization is going to have to reorganize and food is going to be central again, what, what key things do people need to know, um, whether they're in the countryside or whether they're still in the city? And so I really get into to things like, um, okay, here's how to think about making sure your soils are in great shape and you don't destroy your soils through the kind of damage that maybe over tillage was doing, um, not rotating properly, integrating livestock. Okay, here's how you want to make sure that if you don't have herbicides and pesticides, you can, you can use ecosystem services and, and put nature back in the right place and, and have, you know, um, pollinating insects and predatory raptors and, 
And, and so just thinking about the entire agro-ecosystem um, and, and helping people understand that. And then also looking at it from the, from the point of view of, okay, you've got to eat this food. Well, how do you preserve food? Um, and, and what kind of food do, pe- do people historically eat in different times of the year? You know, we're so used to just having this routine. I'm in this too. Oh, I feel like pizza night or, you know, <laughs> you're going to make the same thing over and over again and you're not really paying attention to seasonality so much. That's but so in the true. past, you would eat things depending upon the time of year and, and, and that was because energy was precious and you couldn't just import something from the other part of the world right. or pull it out of a freezer. So, so true. talk about That's- that. Yeah, and I want to get into that in a little bit more detail. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but don't go away, folks. There's much more with Dr. Jason Bradford right after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Jason Bradford. He's a farmer, biologist, and the board president of the Post Carbon Institute. And he just released a report earlier this spring called The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification. And right before the commercial break, we were talking about some of the key knowledge that you outlined, Dr. Bradford, in the report that you put out, key knowledge 
knowledge for the future of food. And, you know, you outlined a few of these. I want our guests to, to get your report. It's a free download. If you go to postcarbon.org, you can find um, a link to put in your email and they'll send you a copy of the report. And I want our listeners to check it out. Um, but I'm wondering, in your view, are the topics that you outline in the report as key knowledge that we need to have for the future of food, are those topics being adequately covered in the ag science departments of our nation's universities? That's a great question. You know, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying anything that any good agronomist uh, would, would not understand. Um, but I think what's going on is that the, the pieces aren't being put together. You know, they're not... They're not really looking and framing agriculture in the context of the future. They're basically assuming that this industrial agricultural system is just going to persist and we're going to keep growing food for export and trade primarily. And, you know, regions of the, of the, of the earth will specialize more and more to have lower diversity of crops and just grow those crops that they grow best and can trade. So, the, you know, people are being trained in egg science, I think, for for the present and the past, but they're not really being trained for the future. Interesting. Interesting. You know, at the end of part three of your report, you focus on measuring and managing soil health. And, um, you know, I remember when my kids were little, there was a little song that they used to sing. They learned it at school called Dirt Made My Lunch. And we've been talking a lot over the last few years about the difference between dirt and soil. And and yeah. I know that the people who made that song were trying to get kids to appreciate that, you know, their food grows on a farm and let's appreciate that. Um, but there's a big difference between dirt and soil. And I'd love for you to help our listeners understand your thinking on this topic of measuring and managing soil health. Yes, I think that the key word, the key, you know, tied to soil health is soil life. And so a healthy soil is really an alive soil. And so then what you have to think about is, well, what, what really fosters uh, soil life? And that, that is something that anyone can understand. If, you, if you're constantly um, uh, tilling the soil, you know, disturbing it with equipment, or if you're constantly putting um, uh, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides on the soil, you're, you're basically damaging the life in that soil, and that will then lead to long-term health decline in the soil. And what a healthy soil does, it's fascinating, is a healthy, healthy soil actually builds a scaffolding. And so soil ends up being actually a three-dimensional structure that has living, uh, living beings that, that have created it like a home. And I think this, the, the scaffold analogy is a good one. If you think of a scaffold, it's got... It's got all this porosity to it. You can, you can move air through it. You can see through it. And yet, it, it, has, it has strength against compression. It has strength against tension. Um, you know, if you tie it down well, it doesn't topple over. Mm-hmm. And so what the soil organisms do is the living soil organisms bind together the minerals, uh, particles in the soil, and create a scaffold. And then water and air and roots can move in and out through the pores in that scaffold and, and really harvest the minerals and water that they need. So I think, you know, to manage soil health well, you want to, you want to keep, keep the soil covered in living plant material, and you want to reduce the amount of, of like, damage you do to it through, through things like tillage. 
Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. And, you know, in part four of your report, it, it's entitled Forward Thinking Farming. And on Go Green Radio, you know, we've had a lot of discussions on organic farming, even permaculture, but we've never discussed um, agroecology and biodynamic farming. And I'd love for you to talk to us about these methods. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm glad you've gone over those because, you know, what I was trying to do in this section was say, you know, there's a lot of actually good good information out there and sort of theory and philosophy about how to do this right. And there are many schools of thought, and they're all related. And they're, they're, they're really they're related, I think, through the lens of ecological thinking. So agroecology, I kind of go over first and say, look, we've got to, if we model the, the food and, and agricultural system um, as closely to ecological systems and how they function as possible, we'll probably be doing a lot of things right. And what's, what's key about, you know, eco- ecological systems is that they have a diversity of organisms involved. So there's, there are plants that are shallow-rooted that can quickly cover a ground and, and, and their fibrous roots go out and hold the soil together. And as, as soon as the rain falls, they can, they can soak it up. Then there are plants that are deeply rooted that have tap roots. So in a dry spell, they can survive really well. Uh, and then there's animals that move through the system and, and disturb it and prevent any one plant from dominating. And so I think that good, good um, agro-ecosystems also mimic this sort of sense of diversification of, of both plants and, and animals, and then, of course, then the soil, which is the most diverse part of the system. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to biodynamic farming, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a... It's a type of farming that came out of the, um, of the, of the work of, of Rudolf Steiner, who also gave us Waldorf schools. And it's very similar to organic farming in terms of what, what the methods are. But what they, they take a, um, a semi-religious point of view about this and, and basically say you also must have animals involved. And so they do a, a better job in general of, of integrating livestock into their farming system for that reason. Interesting. That's really cool. And again, I want to remind our listeners that everybody can get a hold of this report. If you go to postcarbon.org, you can uh, put in your name and email address and you'll get the report emailed to you. You've got to read this. I mean, we all have to eat and this is really important stuff. So it's, it's an excellent report. And, and now we're getting to the hard part. Part five of your report outlines the task of transforming our food system. And this is where I really want our listeners to feel inspired and empowered to be part of the solution. So let's start by having you describe some of the stress events that we should be looking for. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the thing is that our current system is kind of locked into, uh, you know, the relationships it has and the relationships to energy, the relationships to the market, relationships to, they say, money and banking systems. And so it's very hard to move it because it's set in its ways and it's working for it right now. And so what what I talk about is that um, if you want to be a change agent, what you have to sometimes do is just... Keep, your, keep aware of what might, what might stress the system. Like I talked about the adaptive cycle. What mm-hmm. might it be that topples that forest? And so some of the things I, I discuss is high prices for natural gas, high prices for diesel, a general economic crisis of the globe where, where trade gets stalled out, let's say. You mm-hmm. see this happening a bit in the Midwest with the farmers there having trouble 
getting sold all the corn and soy they want. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think that's, that's what we have to be paying attention to and then being ready for, um, well, if you can't get cheap synthetic fertilizers because natural gas prices have skyrocketed, which did happen for a period in, in uh, about 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. then what should farmers be doing? Well, you know, we, we can do cover crops. You can grow legumes in rotation, and you use that legume, which can, which can fix nitrogen with the help of bacteria, to, to take nitrogen from the atmosphere and, and bring it into the soil biologically. And co- farmers, uh, because natural gas and then synthetic fertilizers have been so cheap, it's actually been cheaper for farmers to buy fertilizer that has been manufactured than it has been for them to bother to buy seeds, plant the seeds, um, let that cover crop grow, and incorporate that into the soil. And that's then something they'll have to relearn. So that's just one of many things we can do where you, you get ready to spread the word and have trials ready to go in your area um, and really help promote Uh, say, cover crops for that kind of stress event. Well, and this is something that we've talked about on Go Green Radio before. You know, there's been a lot of lobbying going on in the natural gas industry in the U.S. to allow for more of it to be um, exported. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And that would immediately drive the price of it up domestically. And and the thing is, you know, we've we've seen that a lot of our coal-fired plants and a lot of our electricity has been transitioned to natural gas and that's actually been responsible for even some of the uh, you know, the ability of some of our manufacturing to be brought back onto our own domestic, you know, soil. But yeah. um, the minute that more U.S. natural gas is exported because it's like oil. It's a global commodity. You know, we'll all be paying what Europe pays for natural right. gas. It right. won't be cheap anymore. So we look for that kind of a thing. And when when your synthetic fertilizers are dependent upon those same low natural gas prices, um, that's a that's a game changer. And that could happen overnight if yes. the legislation and the public policy moved in that direction to allow natural gas, more natural gas from the U.S. to be exported. So, you know, these yeah. are all things that, that we need to be aware of. Um, Definitely. You know, there's a, there's a piece in your report that where you outline some of the strategies and tactics that we should be using. And I want you to talk to us about setting the focal area. Yeah, what I'm doing here is I'm saying, look, it's a big world, right? You, you can't... You can't pay attention to everything in the world and, and, know, and know about the details of, any, of all places, all times. So, of course, it's reasonable to say, where do I live? Where do I have relationships? What do I really care about? And then you sort of settled into that place, and you get to be an expert on, on that area where you live. And so you've got to then, just, you know, usually you know, try to do it with other people if you're, if you're doing a, making a food policy council or you're, you're working with some nonprofit that's working on food system reform or agricultural reform where you live and just sort of picking a place to, to sort of, uh, you know, stake your claim and, and, and work on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and talk to us a little bit about the assessment that needs to be done so we can set some transformational goals. Yeah, this is, you know, because most people aren't, uh, we're so specialized in our, in our own ways, we have, uh, we have our areas of expertise and probably very, relatively few of us 
understand how the food system really works where we live and what the history has been. And, and so the assessment is basically once you take your focal area, it's, it's looking at, okay, I'm interested in this, this county or this watershed um, or this state, whatever it might be, and I want to understand, well, what kind of agriculture is here today? What was in the past? What is the landscape like? You know, what, where are the good soils? Um, where are the soils that are marginal? And it'll tell you a lot about why things are the way they are today. Absolutely. And, and, and also, um, then, given what happened in the past, you can sort of say, well, look, we used to grow all this stuff around here, so maybe mm-hmm. we can again. Um, Absolutely, and that's really important for us to know our history a little bit of where we live, especially when we're moving around and transplanting to places that our family didn't grow up for generations. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but I want to go back to this in just a moment when we come back. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you can all be with us because we have a tremendous guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Jason Bradford, and I am really just overwhelmed with the 
tremendous job he did with the report that I want you all to get a hold of. If you get out on postcarbon.org, you can find his new report that he just put out this spring called The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification. And he walks us through this process of figuring out what's going on with our current food system, why it's vulnerable. And then he goes through a lot of things that we need to know so that we can be part of the solution in transforming our our vulnerable food system so that it remains sustainable well into the 21st century and beyond. Um, I really want you guys to get a hold of this report because um, you can do that on postcarbon.org. So do that and, and check it out. You know, Dr. Bradford, as we manage the transformation of our food systems, I'd like for you to talk to us about some of the, the most effective tactics that we can use to be part of that transformation. Sure. I think, you know, one of the key things to do is to understand yourself and know um, what you like to do, what you're good at, what your connections are. And then, and then that's likely where you're going to be most effective. So let's say you have a great connection to local government officials. Maybe you're going to be someone good at aligning local government policy on, on sort of helping the food system transition. Um, maybe you really like education and young people and providing new opportunity for, for farmers. And so maybe you're going to be somebody who can help incubate the new generation of farmers in the years to come and finding places for them to go to, you know, whether it's um, a community farm of some sort or um, helping the local community college develop a program. So there's, there's tons of work that somebody who wants to really get into this can do. Um, maybe you're more aligned with the business community in your area and you you have connections to local grocery stores or local institutions that, that have, you know, kitchens. And so can you then create, help create a market for local food that now farm enterprises can shift towards the local, uh, the local food system? And they, have, they need an act, you know, farmers need, need to be able to sell what they grow. So that's a really important thing to do. Maybe you're kind of interested in, in, in uh, storage and industrial processes and, you have to think about how does the local food system store excess in one time of the year for consumption another time of the year. You know, so this, this is something that we used to do better in the U.S. more locally, and now we've centralized these sort of things of food processing and storage. How can you do that uh, going forward? Um, well, and, I and think another, we're going to need financing yeah. for that, too. So hello, Wells exactly. Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, City, all you guys, we're going to need – people to finance these local food systems. And, and yeah, exactly. so we really yep. do. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's lots to do. Um, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, once you look into this, you just see so many opportunities to, to get active. It's great. Yep. Absolutely. You know, we know the stats on global urbanization. Most people do not live on a farm or in the country. Um, what can city people do? to prepare for the future that you envision? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, um, getting uh, an understanding of your kind of what you might call food shed, um, maybe even working on, you know, the plots of land you can get onto or, and, and, or becoming very good at seasonal cuisine. So can you, even if you are living in an apartment in a city, can you eat locally and seasonally well? So there's lots of skills you can develop that will, that will move things forward. And, of course, talking about this 
and what you're learning and doing to other people would be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, some of the work that I do with the Go Green Initiative takes me into communities that are USDA um, classified food deserts. So, you know, trying to feed your family from a corner market or essentially, you know, what you could buy in something like a 7-Eleven is pretty tough. I mean, they don't have access to fresh produce or, you know, a lot of local food. And they, there's a lot of those communities looking at you know, relocalizing their food system, taking some control over it. Um, and, and I think that's an exciting uh, trend as well. And I would love to see more investment in the organizations that are springing up in these food deserts to address that issue as well. Oh, that's um, definitely a big thing to do. Yeah. You know, you have an upcoming event that I'm pretty excited about, and I want to give you a chance to talk about it. You're going to bring together experts and thinkers and activists for a live online event um, that's pretty much designed to identify and discuss key leverage points where individuals and communities can most effectively shift our food system toward a more long-term sustainable approach. Um, Talk to us about that event and how our listeners can participate. Yeah, sure. I, I, I'm not sure that the event is advertised yet. It will be sometime in, in late June. And, and I, I know that the post-carbon team is working very hard right now and finding a great, uh, great mix of, of people from, from different walks of life, um, you know, rural people, urban people. Um, and, and so I'm really excited because part of what we, we've, we've done these before, and they tend to go really well, and I'm going to be kind of moderating this. And it's really, you know, one of the, one of the things we, we really try to do with these events is get this conversation out to a wider audience. And so a lot of who we invite, you know, may not, they may not know about us as Postcard Institute, but we're looking at them as one of these new, you know, leaders. And we're trying to then promote also what, what they're doing. So someone could have their head down and be doing an amazing job somewhere on a local you know, food system or training new farmers, and they may be doing this um, unaware that you know, we're trying to talk about this, and, and, and they could be a, a guiding light for our, you know, anyone who wants to participate to say, yeah, I, I can do something like that. So I think just you know, go to postcarbon.org and, 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 and you know, drop them a line if you're really interested in that event, and they can then send you, um, you know, the link to uh, registration when, when that's available. Absolutely. In the final moments that we have left in the show, Dr. Bradford, um, what parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, this is, uh, this is sort of tough information. Um, I've processed it for a long time, uh, but uh, I can imagine if someone is really uh, hearing this and, and connecting the dots, it's, it can be kind of stressful um, because it's about ch- it's change and it's a change in our way of life. And so um, I'm, I'm, both, I'm a little stressed about it, too, but I'm also, you know, think about it, I'm kind of excited as well. I think we have the chance to really create something beautiful if we, if we really focus on, on where we live and if we really focus on what's important in life. And part of the thing I worry about, though, is I worry about, you know, economic stress, which this will show up as, um, leaving people behind, and, and it's not fun to live in a society where people are impoverished and people are, you know, can't get the basics in life. So That's I think, so you know, one of the important things that people can do is actually, you know, think about uh, the mm-hmm. social system and, 
and keeping people Absolutely. in your community well, even when we go through economic economic stress. Well uh, and said, and I really future. feel like, you know, you've hit the nail on the head, and I wish we had more time with you, Dr. Bradford. Thank you so much for being on the show, and thanks to all of our listeners for joining us as well. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio, and until then, have a wonderful week, and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.